European settlement, the first governor, Philip, and then a little later, Macquarie, had some ideas, some plans, but that planning almost fell into disrepute. And it wasn't until about the uh, 1909 uh, Royal Commission that we really got our plans going. You've reviewed all the major plans from there for Sydney. How, how did that come about? Well, I was asked by the Greater Sydney Commission to give them an idea of uh, all past plans, just the synopsis of them. And uh, so I did that. Uh, as a hoarder, I, I keep all these things. I've, I've uh, collected them, so I do have every plan from 1909. Not that that was really a plan, it was a Royal Commission, but it was the equivalent of a plan because it was so influential. Um, but it does show how um, ideas changed and how the, the, the issues changed mm. as time went on. Uh, world affairs, the depressions, world wars, all those things affected Sydney as much as anywhere. So, but the early days was really how to feed the colony. And as you couldn't, uh, as the soil wasn't uh, um, fertile enough in the inner areas of Sydney, the long boats of the First Fleet had to sail up the rivers, Parramatta River, uh, Hawkesbury River, uh, George's River, to find suitable agricultural land. So Windsor-Richmond was a major area, around Penrith a major area, um, Parramatta, very much so, and uh, Campbelltown, Liverpool. But Parramatta was the main one. That was the first farm ever in Sydney, and that was James Roos, who was a convict, and he started the farm. And um, that fed the colony. Parramatta could have become really the city centre, but there was a transport problem to it, wasn't there? There was a big problem. The, the, uh, the whole idea was... Um, to try and move to Parramatta because that's where the food was produced. But the problem was that the first fleet could not get up the river because it was uh, at a certain point, the keel, the keels of the first fleet hit the bottom of the river. And there's an old Navy term called um, uh, kissing point. That was the kissing point where the keel hit. Uh, therefore, we all know kissing point road when we go over that, we'll know where the keels hit. So they couldn't, they couldn't settle in Parramatta. They would have liked to have. They would have liked to have had Parliament House there, but they had to turn back and um, settle in Sydney. It's interesting that the first fleet boats, of course, sailed across the ocean, but then had to be used within a local sense in Sydney. Exactly, and because they couldn't... Uh, use the boats there, they had to use the long boats, which were like the lifeboats of the First Fleet. So they had to row them up the river, up the rivers, and it took them quite a few hours to get from Sydney to Parramatta or up to Windsor. But at one stage, in about 1830s or so, there were more people living in those outer western areas, Windsor, Richmond, Parramatta, than there were in the, in the inner parts of Sydney. And there are, uh, and there are tables of that, uh, I think 1850 or so, where the numbers were counted.
we then moved, well, we went through a period of what um, John Sulman, whom we'll talk about later, talked about individualism gone mad. We, we weren't we might have had some grand ideas at the beginning, but it became topsy-turvy, really. In that development, 1840s with the gold rush, our development was actually much quicker after that than America. And we were really booming at that time. And so it was a bit of make hay while the sun shines? Yes, it was unplanned development. So people who made money in the gold rushes or... Um, free settlers or something would just build wherever they wanted to the antithesis of town planning and that was what Sulman was on about because he um, coming from England he, he was in the town planning field and England was the leader in the world of, of town planning from the University of Liverpool that was the first town planning university and he tried to get some order into the into, into settlement, but it was Rafferty's rules virtually, um, and uh, and that was the beginning of uh, people governments realising they had to have some control overall. Yeah, which brings us to the, really, to the 1909 Royal Commission, 80809 Royal Commission. But I think around that time that uh, some of the planning from England, I believe one person has looked back at that and said that Australian didn't want to have nice open areas of um, in within cities because people might congregate there and bring on insurrection. They might talk about insurrection. Our, our heritage from England was somewhat constrained by our view that we were a convict settlement. Well, this, this, is, uh, this is correct. And in fact, you know, some of the, um, uh, some of the ambitions of Governor Phillip and Macquarie were to make this a really fine city. Um, Philip was um, very worldly. Um, he had travelled all over the world because he was lent to the Portuguese Navy by the British Navy and had sailed to Port Sagrio de Janeiro and those areas. He knew all these um, harbours and cities. And again, you know, when he sailed into uh, uh, Port Jackson, uh, he could say that this is the finest harbour he's ever seen. And he had seen a lot of harbours in the world. So, uh, but he wanted to do something. But I think the, uh, the government in, uh, in England thought this was a convict settlement. Why waste money on it and have wide streets and what have you? Because the early planners, or the people interested in planning and who had been a bit worldly who came here, always spouted about Paris. Because Paris was, you know, Louis XIV, I think it was, and, uh, and Hausmann, the, uh, his uh, major prefect, just bulldozed great boulevards throughout the working class suburbs of uh, Paris and made it what we know it as today. But again, the, uh, I think uh, the people in Whitehall were not that impressed with a convict settlement uh, being of that nature. 
It's interesting then that we really do get into this almost urban government period then when, as you said, we realised that we had to be active in planning and control so it wasn't willy-nilly sort of planning and, and the Royal Commission came into Royal Commissions around that time were starting to be seen to be rather important. I, I noted that the Federal Government had three Royal Commissions around that time, one postal services, one on insurance and one on stripper harvesters and drills. Now perhaps they were more earthy things if you pardon the pun, but this one was a real planning urban government enough control to try and have a future. Well this is true and it is very much based on health issues because especially around the rocks you might know and the bubonic plague um, began there and there was a real wake-up call that uh, plague and disease could spread uh, throughout the whole colony if they're not careful. And of course, town planning in England really started as a health issue of trying to make settlement and where people live uh, more healthy and so on and so forth. So yes, that was a, that was a, major, a major issue. And, um, and the, the Royal Commission that you mentioned, the, 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 the main um, starting point of all that was the um, health and the condition of the working class who lived in very poor situations in the inner suburbs. Um, they were very um, um, densely settled in places like the inner suburbs that we know now as the inner suburbs with you know up to six, seven, eight people per household. In fact, the average was uh, six point something, so some would have gone up to ten people in a terrace house. And these, these were major social issues. And they realised that people being brought up under, that, under those conditions could not be controlled too easily. You go back to uh, the 1890s, we, as we, 1889, as we were moving into a depression then, then we had Banjo Patterson writing Clancy of the Overflow, which didn't compare city living very favourably with the, the great outdoors. What was Sydney like then, inner suburbs, outer suburbs? What was their nature? It was a bit both. The, uh, the working class lived in the inner suburbs because that's where the jobs were particularly in the wharves, the warehouses, because uh, Sydney was exporting a lot of the agricultural produce, which was coming by train from the countryside or from what was then the countryside, but was, is now our, in a, our western suburbs, really, where the uh, agriculture could grow, particularly around the Hawkesbury River, George's River, Parramatta River, and uh, but they had to, the working class had to be able to walk to the wharves to do the work, so they congregated in the inner suburbs. The wealthy, who were the merchants and uh, people who owned the retail stores and what have you, moved to the outer areas, like the North Shore, like the, um, um, what we now know as the middle suburbs, 
uh, you know, the, the, the burr woods, the ash fields and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's where they built their uh, detached housing on large lots of land. And, um, and what's interesting about the um, Royal Commission is that they were, uh, the evidence to them was that the working class should move, should live like the middle and upper classes. They should not be confined to flats and apartments or terraces. They should live in detached houses in garden suburbs. They were the, that was the name of the ideal, the garden suburb, which came from England. And, uh, and that was one of the main recommendations of the uh, Royal Commission. We'd had a first train in 1855, uh, but that wasn't for the working class. It wasn't a commuter run. And I think by 1900, still over 50% were walking, as you say, very few on the train. What was, why was that? Well, the train was really for uh, agricultural produce to Darling Harbour and Port Jackson. And, uh, and that was not only to feed the colony, which was its number one uh, um, priority, but for export. So um, that was um, that was what the train was for. Very few passengers used it. Um, the uh, upper and middle classes would not hop in a train in the 1860s and 70s. I think. Uh, they had their horses and carriages and, 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 and what have you. Um, but um, the, that was the early train, 1855, but then I think about 1890 somewhere, or maybe yes, 1890s, the first North Shore train uh, was built. Um, and that went from Milson's Point right up to, I think it was up to Hornsby, may have even gone further. And um, and it's very interesting, uh, there's a street at Taramara called Karingai Avenue, Taramara, and people like Anthony Hordens and Mark Foyers and these people all lived there. And the houses are still there, they're very grand on large lots of land, and they walked to Taramara Station, caught the train down to Milsons Point, caught the ferry across to Circular Quay, and walked to their emporiums or caught a tram. Now the first trams were horse-drawn and um, uh, so that, that, that was it. So the Royal Commission, the evidence to that was that the working class should live like these people. Um, if you wanted the Sydney to grow as a major city. Um, and they, obviously people were worried about um, what the working class, where that would end up, the, the criminology and the criminals and so on and so forth. So um, it was an interesting, not only health, the bubonic plague, which came from the ships obviously that came in, rats coming down the ropes and things. Um, all that was, was, was an issue at the time. And it was probably, Governor Macquarie in the 1810s and things first realised all that. It was probably too late 
to turn Sydney into Paris, which John Sullivan, the architect, was very keen that under the title of beautification of Sydney, to try and bring some semblance of the Parisian boulevards. But that didn't get far. Um, he certainly wanted, he, he, his evidence, the Royal Commission included a plan showing a boulevard from Circular Quay to Central Railway as the main spine of Sydney through Hyde Park and that never happened. Um, evidence of the Commission said Macquarie Street should be widened to 100 feet because of its importance, Parliament House, hospital, what have you, never happened. So um, there was a lot of ambition and uh, pushing to do that, but the wherewithal was not there for government to spend money on that. The moving out was almost, we gave up on Sydney as being something that you could make into, I think, one of the expressions, modern town planning. I think that's absolutely correct. People gave it up. But again, it came a bit from, uh, from London, where the working class lived in the inner areas. And if, if the people who could afford it moved out to the country, which was now out of London, and, um, and travelled in by train, amongst other things, into the centre if they had to. And uh, because the train system, private enterprise had built different uh, the metropolitan system was the first train, that's where the word metro comes from, and um, um, that was it, and, uh, uh, and therefore the, the, uh, the upper class, middle class uh, here emulated what was happening in it wasn't just an egalitarian approach, it was the notion, I think John Sulman, like euthenics, is saying that if you improve the uh, outer conditions of people, you improve their inner health and so on. As you say, it was that very strong thing. And so we came to the point where we really decided, we, you know, we have to look at this very sincerely. Who was the first commissioner? Of, of, of the report? Who, who, who was the commissioner? Do you know? Ah, uh, um... I think, I'm not sure, can we just have a look at this, who the first commissioner was? Um, um, of course, you probably knew the answer all the time, the Right Honourable Thomas Hughes, which is of famous course, family. famous family, mm. um, which is linked to the Turnbull, oh, uh, yes. uh, Lucy Turnbull, was oh. accused. And that, so he was the first Lord Mayor of, um, of Sydney, Sydney, yes, and he was the Commissioner. I thought he came later, but no, 1909 he was the Commissioner. Who was, Who was the influences there? there? Well, there, there was, was no, no department of planning. planning. <laughs> what, what sort of government had some, some input? Well, there was a department of local government and the transport agencies were very strong because they were building railways, they had built the railways. But the, um, I think the um, local government people and the transport people pushed very much 
for an electric railway, which, um, and the reason being, and strangely enough, was the congestion on Sydney's roads. And the congestion was not only horse-drawn carriages and what have you, but the tram network. And that's mentioned in the Royal Commission that, you know, whilst the trams were very valuable, they did cause a lot of congestion and um, therefore what was needed was an underground railway and um, to link the whole of the central business district, particularly to some of the outer areas. And the evidence also was that if you wanted to move the working class out of the inner suburbs to the garden suburbs, they had to be able to get back to their work. Because up to then, they were all within walking distance because they couldn't afford the, uh, even the tram network. If you're working class, you could not afford to twice a day pay for the tram. So you had to be able to walk. And that's where Woolloomooloo became a major working class suburb to the Woolloomooloo Wharves, uh, Piermont, all those areas around the, the Darling Harbour became the working class areas. So the idea was, if you want to get the working class, the working men, as they're called often here, uh, to the garden suburbs, you had to have railways to move them back to where they wor their work was. And therefore, the Commission of Railway was very influential in this um, uh, Royal Commission was later replaced in Sydney by the Commissioner of, of Roads, really, wasn't it? That first phase was transport-related yes. railways, but later on, I think the de facto planning department became the DMR. Well, this is right, roads, and uh, rail was always, was always there. But the, the railways had done their bit, and the, of course the, um, the electric loop was built. The first station was St James, and if you look at St James Station today, it's got a plaque on the top, uh, St James Station, 1920-something or other. Because remember, 1909, by the time all the recommendations were absorbed and that, the First World War had started in 1914, and that just put a stop to everything. By the time the war was over, 1918, then in the 1920s, there was depressions and worldwide depression. So things were done, but probably not as quickly as was thought. Um, it's not easy to do either. No, not at all. But the point was the idea of moving the, the, the working class from the slums, so-called, to the garden suburbs which I suppose included Ashfield and, uh, uh, and uh, Croydon and uh, some of these middle suburbs as we know now. Um, and when we look at them now, you could see how they were garden suburbs compared with the uh, Surrey Hills and Newtowns and um, Redferns and Paddingtons. Um, even in 19... 48, the first real plan for Sydney, 
the Royal Commission was not a plan, but the real first plan, the County of Cumberland plan, was very strong on demolishing the slums of Sydney and uh, substituting high-rise buildings set in their parkland, which was the fashion in Europe, based on the Cabusier's towers in the landscape. And uh, it was even a list of uh, the suburbs to be completely demolished, including Paddington, the whole of Paddington to be demolished, uh, Newtown, Balmain, a lot of glebe, and so on and so forth. These are very rich areas now in a city, and we might have thought that that was very naive at the time, yet it reflected broad thinking. It did, and, and I must say, in the, the 1950s, certainly 40s, certainly up to the 50s, places like um, Paddington and Surrey Hills were still considered as slums. And in fact, I think Ruth Park in her novel talked about Surrey yes. Hills. Yes. Um, um, um. Charlotte's Web and that I think is all, all you know written about uh, the disadvantaged in the inner city areas. Well, this is exactly right, and the people who saved the inner suburbs were the European migrants after the war, yes. who particularly the ones who came from Italy and Spain and Greece, more or less the Mediterranean areas probably came here and wondered what, what's wrong with these places, it's better than Naples or where, where we lived, you know, in, uh, back in Europe. Luxury. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. And in fact inhabited those and rented them, uh, some bought them, um, and virtually saved them because without them it would have been they would have been demolished. Saved them and they didn't save forever because uh, their dream, the Australian dream, was to move out into the countryside and have a farm or something. So they moved to Camden and uh, uh, out of Penrith and those areas, Leppington, and started a lot of uh, their garden market, gar market gardens. But importantly, left the terraces the gentrifiers, the mad artists and architects and uh, whoever thought, yeah, they don't look bad, you know, we've seen these in England, we can do these up and they can look quite good. And the rest is history. Going back then, but there were still idealists. Florence Taylor, a wonderful character back in the 20s, and she lived much after that, but uh, she was Australia's first female architect and then studied civil engineering, I believe. Yes. I like this woman. No, 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 I like this person. She, she didn't want to get into male and female. She wanted to get into the details. Exactly, and I think that's terribly important, and she should be better known uh, than she is. Uh, there's a big... Uh, if you come into Central Railway near Monument Station, there on a wall is a whole history of Florence Taylor on the wall, and because uh, it was recognised there. And her, her husband, I think George Taylor, um, was the editor of a magazine called Building, or sort of an architecture building magazine, that pushed the ideas of the time. and. Um, um, so they were very influential.
and great characters. John, later Sir John Sulman, yes. whom we have an art prize, and we also have an architecture prize as well. That they were principled people who were really advocating for a high ideal. Very much so, because uh, they were educated in, uh, in England uh, in the town planning profession, which really started, as I said before, around Liverpool in about before the First World War, Liverpool University, paid for by the Lever Brothers because um, Lever Brothers built one of the first garden suburbs called Port Sunlight, just outside of Liverpool. And that was sort of the beginning of developing suburbs as garden suburbs. Garden because they were low density, they were detached houses, what we know as suburbia, really. And, uh, and then the Cadbury people built uh, Bourneville near Birmingham, and so on and so forth. And they, they funded a lot of the uh, town planning courses. Lever Brothers funded the first uh, town planning course in Liverpool. And Sir Patrick Abercrombie became the professor, one of the most famous town planners. But Sulman would have studied with him. And uh, luckily, we had quite a few of these people from the Liverpool School come to Australia. Gordon Stevenson in, uh, in Perth and, and, and so on. There were a few around. But Sulman was very influential. He gave a lot of... Uh, he was a major witness at the Royal Commission. And he... Uh, he was the voice of modern town planning, which brought it to Sydney. Businesses, well, some businesses seem to have a very enlightened view. That they saw that that's a uh, euthenics approach, yes. that uh, the welfare of their workers was important to them and to their business. Exactly. And that really started in England, uh, very much so. And whether it was a religious thing or whether it was a philosophical thing, uh, I think a bit of all of those. A bit of Quaker. Quaker, that, yes, uh, and all that. And that would have translated into the United States as well as Australia and other areas. So English planners were quite influential in the United States as well, certainly Canada and Australia. And, and as you say, Sulman was the main voice at the time. It's interesting then that the Commission for Sydney, with its heritage from, you know, people on it with their own heritage, which is lovely, are we moving back to a view of not looking at history in one dimension as though, oh, they were obviously right or they were obviously wrong, but an understanding, as you said, at the very beginning of cause and effect and what might move? Are we taking a broader view now, do you think? I think so. I think the uh, Greater Sydney Commission is a major step forward because it's looking at Sydney as a whole. Uh, I know in um, the time of the 1909 Commission, this was for Sydney, um, but um, there are not many major cities in the world that don't have some sort of a commission looking at, the, looking at London, for instance, the London County Council, or New York, or an area rather than a whole state, and the main city just happens to be part of the state. So it, it's focused on that, and 
things change and unless one sees what's happening in the world and what have you, um, it's difficult to steer a major city in a certain direction. And I think what's being realised now is the growth of Sydney and Melbourne, for instance, with, a, with the knowledge industries. And that, that, that's one of the big things. We're not a manufacturing nation anymore. Um, not that I don't think we ought to be. I think we've got the capability. I think we'll come back to it, actually. But that's another story. Um, but the other thing is we are part of the Pacific um, Pacific Rim region, world region, which uh, has been described by the World Bank as the next major, or at, at the moment is, the major world region is the Pacific region. Is the message of the 1909 Royal Commission then is not to do as we had done in the past of ad hoc, you know, take it as it comes, bulldoze, not in terms of town planning, but in terms of business or so on, into one that says, yes, this is an opportunity, but we have to do it with thought of how we make the city look and how we make it ultimately function. Well, that's exactly right. And also, if we want to attract the knowledge workers and keep the knowledge workers, it has to be a city people want to live in. And that is a big issue, and you know, one of the big issues of affordability to keep young, educated people in the city is a major issue, which I think uh, governments are realising. Governments realise, that's the whole point really of this, isn't it? Yes. That we're into urban, control's too strong a word, but certainly planning is the, the word I think you would like to use. I think so, and understanding where we're going, where we're heading, and we have a lot of uh, people like the Grattan Institute or the Brookings Institution uh, of Washington and so on, we were aware of what they were all talking about and, uh, and realising that we are part of this, that Sydney is part of it. And when you look at uh, like world league tables like the most livable cities or the most advanced cities and so on and so forth, Sydney and Melbourne are in there with other 10 top or 20 top cities in the world, which is quite remarkable and therefore uh, we've been given a challenge. We've, uh, we need to stay there. Worth, worth fighting for, Bob. Worth fighting for, yes. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure.